You know, there are things that God can do that we cannot precisely because He is God, right? There are things that are good and right for God to do that would be sin and evil for us to do precisely because God is God and we are not. You see, He has created fallen people, there are certain deeds and actions that can never be done in a righteous way without sinning precisely because we are sinful. And on the other hand, there are certain deeds and actions that only God can perform precisely because He is God. For instance, as believers, it is sin. It is always sin for us to take personal vengeance upon our enemies. But you see, on the other hand, it is perfectly right and appropriate for God to do so, precisely because He is God. As believers, it is sin. It is always sin for us to keep a record of wrongs against the people that have wronged us. But at the exact same time, it is the glory of God to keep a record of wrongs and still yet to punish those who committed the wrongs. And I know that we're not typically accustomed to speaking about God in this way. We tend to leave the wrath of God as the unspoken assumption, the lone flaw in God's character. The, the dirty blemish that we should only talk about once or twice a year, and even then we should apologize and kill it with a thousand qualifications. But you understand that part of what it is that makes God God and that makes God glorious is that He is a God who keeps record of wrongs. That He is a God who does not forget. That He is a God of justice and vengeance. That he is a God of righteous wrath and terrible sovereign fury. That he did not discover the lake of fire, but he made the lake of fire. And, and prepared it as a place to punish forever all the rebels of history who refused to repent and to yield in subjection. You see, unless covered by the blood of his son, God does keep a record of wrongs, and it is only right that he does so. Because should God ignore the sin and evil of the world? Should he sweep it under the rug of the universe? Should he let the guilty go free without a penalty? If he lets his glory be impugned, his name be smeared, his justice be mocked, put it this way, unless he keeps a record of wrongs. And very simply, he would cease to be glorious. And he would cease to be God. And as you're keeping a record of wrongs and bringing a well-deserved vengeance upon the wicked nations that hate him is exactly what Isaiah says God is going to do. That God is the God who does not forget. That for God to be God... And for God to be glorious and worthy of worship and all allegiance, that he must vindicate his worth and the glory of his name by the fearful exertion of his fury and wrath upon the unrepentant. That, that to be sure, he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. All of that is true, and we love that with all of our hearts. And yet we also remember this morning with profound sobriety and a weighty sense of solemnity that God is also a consuming fire who will by no means clear the wicked or let the guilty go unpunished. You know that we're in Isaiah. And in particular, we're in chapters 13 through 23, which are not well known in the history of the church, but they should be. They really should be because in these chapters is found a series of oracles against the nations. Wicked, hostile, godless, 
dangerous nations that if you were living in Isaiah's day, you would be tempted to trust them and you would be tempted to fear them. And the whole reason why these oracles exist, you understand, was to keep both of those things from happening. How? Because in these oracles, you understand, is a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable, sovereign purpose in the universe. And if that's what you believe about God, that God is sovereign over nations, that God has a plan for the nations, that God will crush the nations that oppose him, that he will save his elect out of the nations. If those are the lenses through which you view the world and those are the lenses through which you should view the world, what happens? It puts a stake in the heart of our fears, doesn't it? So this morning we get to oracles 2 and 3, 2 and 3 out of 10, in which Yahweh reveals the fate of three particular nations who had always been a thorn in the side of God's people, namely Assyria, Philistia, and Moab. God had been patient with them. He had been gracious to them. He had been slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness with these wicked and hostile people. And yet God had kept a record of their wrongs. And the time had come for vengeance. Salvation too, but mostly vengeance. Because that also gives glory to God. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three surprising lessons. Three surprising lessons to be learned from the oracles of Assyria, Philistia, and Moab. Three surprising lessons to be learned from the oracles of Assyria, Philistia, and Moab. And I say surprising because it seems surprising that we can learn anything from nations who don't even exist anymore, and yet it is precisely because they do not exist is exactly why we should listen. So here we go. Here we go. Actually, we're going to finish up Oracle number one from last week. Oracle one, part three. Oracle one, part three. If you have your notes, this is, this is on there. Oracle one, part three, which is about Assyria, which I'm calling the crushing of a kingdom and the council of Yahweh. The crushing of a kingdom and the council of Yahweh. Now, again, if you've been with us, you remember that chapters 13 through 23 are a series of poetic, prophetic, sermon judgments called oracles. And you remember that the word oracle literally means burden. A burden that is a weight, something heavy and weighty and even crushing upon the heart, which means, which means these are not easy sermons to preach. These are not easy sermons to hear because they're about real people with real souls who will really spend eternity somewhere. Prophets did not get their jollies preaching judgment, no matter who it was being judged. And so oracle burden is the perfect word to describe what Isaiah had to preach. And you have to understand, these 11 chapters, these are so, so unbelievably crucial for the people of Judah. These are so important because the allure and the temptation to trust and fear the nations around them instead of Yahweh was unbelievably enticing. And the entire reason why they were in the current debacle that they were in and on the brink of collapse was precisely because they had a really, really bad habit of trusting and fearing the wicked nations around them. And so you understand the, the entire purpose of these oracles was to free Judah from trusting the nations and to free Judah from fearing the nations. Don't fear them. Do not trust them because Yahweh is sovereign over them and he will in large part destroy them. I don't make the rules. I just report the facts. Last week, we started oracle number one, which is all about Babylon. And we saw in that oracle to Babylon a, a psychedelic song of end times events. Do you remember that? And Yet, and yet, just before Isaiah finishes oracle number one, like a footnote, at the last second, he sneaks in this beautiful, theologically potent prophecy about Assyria, which was the number one world power of his day. Look at verses 24 through 27 of chapter 14. 
24 through 27. Isaiah says, Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I intend, thus it will be. And as I have purposed, thus it will stand. To shatter Assyria in my land and on my mountain, I will trample them underfoot. The yoke upon them will be removed, and the burden upon their shoulders will be taken away. This is the counsel which was counseled against all of the earth, and this is the outstretched hand against all of the nations. For Yahweh of hosts has purposed, and who will frustrate it? And his outstretched hand, and who will turn it back? There's a lot of really good theology there like the kind of theology that justifies preaching this chapter to you. The kind of theology that kills anxiety and conquers fear and overcomes depression and most of all gets our eyes off of ourselves and on to a God who is matchless and supreme. And by that, I mean the theology of God's invincible power that rules and reigns over the nations. Look first at verse 24, which I'm calling the claim. The claim, verse 24, look what it is that Yahweh claims about himself. Yahweh of hosts has sworn, say, surely as I intend, thus it will be, and as I purpose, thus it will stand. Do you see what Yahweh does? He places himself under oath, as it were. Not under oath to anyone more powerful than him because there is no one more powerful than him, but, but even under oath to his very own power. That, that whatever it is that he plans to do, that is exactly what he's going to do. That whatever it is that he has ordained and decided before time to do, that is exactly how it's going to play out in history. Do you believe that? That whatever God intends, that's exactly what's going to happen? The question that is raised here, well, what, is it, what, exactly, what plan exactly is God talking about? What exactly is he speaking about? What does he have in mind here? And that brings us to what I call the prediction in verse 25. The prediction. Look at verse 25. My plan, he says, is to shatter Assyria in my land. And on my mountain I will trample them underfoot. And the yoke from upon them, upon my people, will be turned aside, and the, and the burden on their shoulders will be removed. What is the prediction? Can you see it? Like Babe Ruth calling his own shot before a homer? Yahweh predicts that he is going to shatter Assyria, the world power at the time. And notice what it says, that he's going to break them, he's going to shatter them, he is going to crush them. What does the text say? In my land and on my holy mountain. What does that mean? That, that implies, that implies, get this now, that Assyria is actually going to invade the land of Judah. And they're going to surround the city of Jerusalem. And yet at the 11th hour, just before the buzzer, Yahweh was going to intervene and deliver a crippling blow to the Assyrians and break them to the ground. And guess what? That is exactly what happened 15 years later in chapter 37. When the dogs of Assyria howl outside the gates, demanding their surrender. And that very night, before they stormed the city, Yahweh, you remember this, he sends an, an angel of death into the camp, in and he kills 185,000 soldiers in one night, and Jerusalem lives again to see another day. This right here in Isaiah is a prediction of that 15 years later. That's what he just predicted. And you see it, right? The practical effect of this the practical effect of this would be to prevent the people of Judah from trusting in Assyria and to prevent the people of Judah from fearing the nation of Assyria. 
Do not trust them. Do not fear them because both of those things make zero sense in light of the fact that God is going to shatter Assyria, which he did do. And you see here that this is, this is written for our instruction. This is written for our encouragement. This here is written as tangible, historical, theological evidence that prevents us from fear and panic and idolatry when we are hit by things in life beyond our strength and beyond our control, isn't it? You have to understand, every single event in your life is intended and designed by God. And his will in your life is not to run and hide and choose the easy path. But to get on your knees and ask for the impossible. Because you remember the trust fall game, don't you? You let yourself fall and you trust the person behind you to catch you. Well... In the trust fall game, which is faith in God, you have to understand that the arms of security into which you fall are the arms of the God who is supreme, which brings me to the supremacy in verses 26 and 27. The supremacy, look at the text and behold the foundation of our sanity and the foundation of our joy. This is the counsel which was counseled against all of the earth. And this is the outstretched hand, think a fist, against all of the nations. For Yahweh of hosts has counseled, and who shall frustrate it? And his outstretched hand, and who shall turn it back? Let me just tell you that if those verses are not true, and God is not in meticulous sovereign control, over, uh, over everything, then we, we might as well drink a bunch of poison Kool-Aid and die in obscurity because we are of all people most to be pitied. But if they are true, and they are true, then we are of all people most to be envied because we belong to a God who is matchless and supreme. Look at verse 26. This is the counsel, which was counseled against all of the earth. And this is the outstretched hand against all of the nations. This is incredible. Do you see what God just did? The clever bait and switch. He was just talking about the lone nation of Assyria. And now all of a sudden, he's talking about all of the earth. He's talking about all of the nations. What is he doing? Do you see what he's doing? He is saying that Assyria is one tiny teeny little example of his sovereign power that he wields over all the nations and that they are all equally under his dominion. Do you believe that? Look at Isaiah's challenge in verse 27. For Yahweh of hosts has counseled and who will frustrate it and his outstretched hand and who will turn it back what is the answer it's a rhetorical question what is the answer who can frustrate the plans of Yahweh who who is going to keep him from doing whatever it is that he has ordained to do it's a short list in fact there is no list because even when it seems like his enemies have gained the upper hand, like Egypt, like Assyria, like the Sadducees against his son, like the Antichrist in the future, it is only to make his victory over them even more glorious in the end. Behold, then, the value of these oracles for your life. You have to understand, there is nothing more practical for you than a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. When these are the lenses through which you view the world, everything is transformed, isn't it? When these are the lenses through which you view the world, how you treat people will be different. Trust me. How you spend money will be different. How you use time 
will be different. How you respond to trials and inconveniences and surprises will be radically different. Why? Because you understand all of them to be a part of God's global plan to put his glory and beauty on display. That's why we need these oracles. Which brings me to oracle number two. Oracle number two, which is about Philistia, the Philistines, which I'm calling Flying Serpents and the Future of Zion. Flying Serpents and the Future of Zion. And ah, yes, the Philistines. Who could forget the Philistines? Because God certainly hadn't forgotten the Philistines. He also had a plan for them. He had also kept a record of their wrongs. And now after centuries and centuries of patience with the ancient foe of the people of God, he now announces a very well-deserved judgment to end their reign of terror in the ancient Near East. Starting in verse 28, look what Isaiah says. He says, in the year of the death of the king Ahaz, this oracle came to me. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because if you've been with us during this whole time in Isaiah, you remember that the last time that phrase occurred, in the year of the death of the king, was back in chapter 6, verse 1, wasn't it? With the death of Uzziah, and ironically and unfortunately, it was Ahaz who took his place, who was the most despicable king in the history of Judah. And when he died, all godly Judeans, and there were not many of them, cried out in relief. And his death puts us around the year 17, 715 B.C. 715 B.C., that's around when this oracle was written, which means it would be another 15 years before the Assyrians would storm the city or at least stand outside the gates of the city. And, and Israel would very nearly be wiped out of existence. So in the year of the death of Ahaz, Isaiah received this teeny tiny little oracle about none other than the Philistines. Look at verse 29. Speaking to the Philistines. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, any of you, that the staff of the one who struck you is broken. Do not be happy about that. Why? Because from the root of the serpent, a viper will come forth and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. No, this is not a science fiction film. This is prophecy. It's kind of weird, but you can tell the Philistines are in trouble. They're in trouble. And you might remember that there's a long and bloody history between the Philistines and everybody else, in particular the people of Israel. And you might know this, probably know this, that the Philistines were not originally from the area of Canaan. They were not from there originally. Rather, they were a seafaring people. They were, original, they were the original Vikings of the ancient Near East who had settled there centuries and centuries before this, even before the days of Abraham, they were there. You remember they were the arch enemy of Samson, the thorn in the side of David, a perpetual terror to the people of Israel, even long after the death of, and murder of their greatest warrior, Goliath himself. And you see, the thing about the Philistines is that they controlled the entire western coast of Canaan and slash Israel for centuries. That was their territory. And you have to understand, they were awful, unwelcome, and unrepentant terrorists. I know we sort of had this comic book view of them from the exploits of Samson, but, but trust me when I say that these were not nice guys. These were not like the three stooges of the ancient world, right? The, the, these were murderers and mercenaries and terrorists who killed people without mercy. And you should not feel bad that there is an oracle of judgment against them nor that there are no Philistines today. And notice Isaiah begins in verse 29 addressing the Philistines directly. Do not rejoice, O Philistia. Do not rejoice that the staff of the one who struck you is broken. Do you see it? It's a warning. Do not be happy, O Philistia. Wipe that smirk off your face. And why were they happy? Isaiah says, because the staff of the one who struck them is broken. 
<laughs> what is that even talking about? You know what that is? That's a reference to Assyria. That's a reference to Assyria. And we know that because chapter 10, verse 5, uses that exact language of rod and staff to refer to Assyria. And yet, listen carefully, the Philistines celebrating over the shattered staff of Assyria probably refers to the death of Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, the, the great Assyrian king who died about 12 years before this. You, you remember Assyria was a monster. The Philistines didn't stand a chance. Nobody stood a chance against Assyria. And yet you have to understand that the death of Tiglath-Pileser uh, provided some temporary relief and halted the progress, at least for a little while, of the Assyrian advance of their kingdom. And so as would be expected, the Philistines, like everybody else, rejoiced and breathed a sigh of relief, and they celebrated a new and bright future without the invasion, without an, uh, without an Assyrian invasion, and yet their joy and their celebration would be hasty and presumptuous. Just because Tiglath-Pileser died, it was a little too early to break out the champagne and celebrate. It was really stupid to let their guard down and get comfortable because what they did not know was that coming after the snake of tiglath Pileser was a viper, a fiery, flying serpent far more dangerous than his snaky father who preceded him. That's what Isaiah means at the end of verse 29 when he says, do not rejoice. Why? For from the root of the serpent shall come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a flying, fiery serpent. In other words, if you thought daddy was bad, you haven't seen anything yet. And his name was Sargon. And he was awful. He was awful. Under his reign is really when the Assyrian kingdom really grew leaps and bounds. This dude was fierce. He, a, a viper that flies and bites like fire refers to his swiftness and his deadliness. And the Philistines really should. They, they should wipe that smirk off their face because in about 15, 17 years from this moment in 712 B.C., Sargon's army would invade the land of Philistia. Actually, that was only about three or four years away. Sargon's army would invade the land of Philistia and simply wipe them off the face of the planet. <laughs> Verse 30. It's interesting. Typically, when an army invades, they would not kill the poor and needy of the land. They didn't waste their time on, on, on killing the bums. But Philistia would receive no such special treatment. Even they would be killed. Look at the end of verse 30. This is shocking. Yahweh says, Yahweh says, I will kill your root. That's a reference to the poor. I will kill your root with famine and your remnant, he, that is Sargon, he will slay. That is shocking language. Do you see it? Almost as if Yahweh and Sargon partner together. Yahweh will kill the poor with famine and Sargon will slaughter them, which means Assyria will be the instrument of Yahweh for their extermination. And Yahweh takes the credit. I will kill them, he says, through the instrument and weapon of Assyria. And you understand this prophecy is exactly why there are no Philistines today. They don't exist because of this. Verse 31, no, no, I mean, no wonder they're called burdens, right? Oracles, it's weighty, heavy, gripping. Verse 31 then calls the Philistines to weep and lament for their own future annihilation. Notice the contrast of verse 29. Verse 29 said, do not rejoice, but instead weep and lament and wail and howl, O Philistia, all of you. Why? Look at the end of verse 31. For from the north smoke will come, and there is no straggler in their ranks. What is that even talking about? The reference to smoke is a reference to the dust that you would see on the horizon as a nation marches in to conquer you. An army, by the way, in which not one single soldier is weak or lags behind. In other words, Assyria would be and was an absolute war machine that decimated everything in their path. No one stood 
a chance. And so you understand this is one reason, one of the many reasons why Judah should neither fear the Philistines nor should they trust in the Philistines because they could neither be hurt nor be destroyed by the Philistines. There is no threat here. And maybe you think, well, but they could be hurt by the Assyrians. They could be destroyed by the Assyrians. Or if they got smart, they could be helped by the Assyrians. If they paid them off and bribed them for their protection. Well, that's a really interesting idea because that's exactly what Ahaz did about 20 years before that. And you remember Isaiah rebuked him in chapter 7 saying that because you did that, you just need to know your little deal will mean nothing to Assyria and they are going to turn on you and very nearly wipe you out of existence, which is exactly what would happen in another 15 years years, chapter 37. But you, you understand the whole point of these oracles is, is that Judah neither needs to trust the Philistines nor do they need to fear the Philistines precisely because their eternity is secure. Here's the punchline, verse 32. The, the picture, and I, I want you to picture this here. The idea is that Philistinian ambassadors, they come to Judah in the future hoping to join in an alliance. That's the picture in verses in verses 31 and 32. I mean, the Philistines know that they don't stand a chance against Assyria. Nobody stands a chance, and so they would swallow their pride and come to Judah with their tail between their legs, hoping to join their armies together in an alliance against Assyria. And the question is, what were the people of Judah supposed to say in response? And Isaiah gives them a script. Look at verse 32. Yahweh has appointed or established Zion. And the afflicted of his people will take refuge in it. In other words, no. No, thank you. We don't need to join in an alliance with you. We don't need your protection. Because our future is secure. How? Why? Notice, notice the text, verse 32. God has appointed, he has established Zion. Do you know what Zion is? Do you know where Zion is? That's Jerusalem, baby. That's Jerusalem. That's a city on the planet right now. Not Jerusalem as it exists today, but Jerusalem as it will exist in the future when the Messiah arrives to rule his kingdom. In other words, Zion is eschatological. Zion is the future. Zion is the capital of the kingdom. One day, God's remnant, his elect among the Jews upon the return of King Jesus will take refuge in the capital city of Zion and be safe and secure in the kingdom of the Messiah and no one will ever afflict them again. Do you see what Isaiah is trying to do for his people? How he's trying to shepherd his people with eschatology? I mean, you see it, right? The, the practical power of the prophetic. The gospel of the eschatological is that the happy ending of the plan of God frees us to be a people who trust him in the present. Do you see? And this whole thing here of the Philistines wanting to join an alliance makes me want to ask you, do you have anything in your life at all that would count as an unholy alliance? Are you caving to the Philistines? Are you looking to godless Assyria to protect you? What I mean is, do you feel yourself caving to the culture? Caving to fear? Caving to your own desires that wage war within your very own soul? What I mean is, is there anything in life to which you are looking other than God for meaning and security and significance and satisfaction? Anything at all? The principle here is powerful, isn't it? What God has guaranteed and promised in the future, 
the secure and beautiful future that he has ordained for his people who already belong to Christ is designed precisely to free us from the fear and the allurement that leads to compromise. That's the principle. We don't need to cater to the mob and their demand for white penance and social justice. We don't need to cater to the insanity of people picking their pronouns and us have to play along with the delusion of calling men women and women men. We must not do that. Well, the battle's not only cultural, it's internal. What God has planned for the future frees us to be generous, doesn't it? It, it frees us from storing up treasures on earth and being obsessed with our securities. You, you understand, the hope that comes from eschatology frees us from the fear of man and getting canceled and losing our jobs and it liberates bold, joyful proclamation of the gospel. How does it do that? Because we know that no matter what it is that happens to us, the outcome remains unchanged. Do you see? That's kingdom logic. That's kingdom economics. That is the power of prophecy, and that is exactly why these oracles are here. So I ask you again, do you have any sort of compromise, unholy alliance with the world, with the culture, with your own sin? Be freed this morning from what God has planned for the future. Which brings us finally to oracle number three. Oracle number three, which is about Moab, which I'm calling the suicide of pride and the hope of David. The suicide of pride and the hope of David. Let me ask you something. When is the last time that you've had to say to someone, I'm really sorry, there's nothing I can do? I'm really sorry, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing more we can do. Those are really hard words to say to someone, especially if it's someone that you love and that they are about to face the consequences of something that they themselves have done. Right? It could have all been avoided had they just simply heeded the warnings and listened to the pleas and, and the, the warnings and the offerings and the calls to change, but now it is too late. They blew their chances. They burned the bridges. They ignored too many warnings. And now the bitter punishment and pain must simply run its course, and they must pay for what they have done. You ever in that situation? I say that because that's the exact scenario with the Moabites in Oracle number 3 which, believe it or not, takes up two full chapters. Two full chapters devoted to Moab. That's interesting. Again, you remember the word oracle means burden, right? A, a burden and weight that breaks the heart and grieves the soul. Th th these are the kinds of things you say with trembling hands and, and a quivering voice. This is hard. This is really hard to say. And, and oracle number three to Moab might just be the most burdensome of all. And the reason for that is because you know that Israel and Moab didn't just have a common history, they had a common what? Ancestry. They were related. They were blood relatives with the Jews on the same family tree whose, whose genealogical history went all the way back to Lot, the very nephew of Abraham himself. Do you remember? And yet, although they were related by blood, they were connected by Ruth, and eventually they would be connected by King David, Moab had complete, completely drifted and strayed into a pagan nation. The relationship between these two feuding families was less than great, to say the least. It all went back, actually, to the book of Numbers. Do you remember that? As Israel is marching through the land, the king of Moab sees all these Israelites and he does not want them croaching on his territory, on the land, which actually rightly belonged to them. And he knew it, and so he hired Balaam 
the false prophet to curse them and to kill them? Bad move. God never forgot that. And so since there was a very love-hate and on-again, off-again relationship, eventually it became only off-again. It became only hate, and there was this very deep hostility between these two nations, and yet, be that as it may, that did not make preaching an oracle of judgment against the Moabites any easier for Isaiah. Because he had to look his blood relatives in the eye, as it were, and say with trembling hands and a quivering voice, I'm really, really sorry. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing you or anyone can do to save you from the wrath and judgment that's about to come. Speaking of the bitter pain to come from Moab, look at verses 1 through 4. Note especially the references to weeping and wailing and howling and sorrow. What did you learn in church today? Weeping. <laughs> sorrow. Wailing. But that's not all. But notice, notice what he says starting in verse 1. The oracle of Moab. Indeed in the night, Ar of Moab will be devastated. It will be destroyed. Indeed in the night, Kir of Moab will be devastated. It will be destroyed. They, the Moabites, will go up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places, to weep. On Nebo and Mediba, Moab will wail. Every head will be bald, every beard will be shaved in their courts. They will be clothed with, or in their streets, they'll be clothed with sackcloth, sackcloth on their rooftops and in their courts. All of Moab will wail, bowing down while weeping. Heshbon and Eleale will cry out until, until Jahaz, their voice will be heard. Therefore, the armed men of Moab will cry aloud and their soul will tremble within them. What are we even seeing? And that's grim, right? It is grim. And yet what we're seeing, and you, I'm sure you could guess this, is an invasion of Moab by a foreign army, probably Assyria, before it ever actually took place in history. In fact, chapter 16, verse 14 tells us that all of these terrors that we're about to see would happen in three years' time. Moab would be leveled to the ground and destroyed three years from the writing of this oracle. You notice there, verses 1 and 2, Ar and Kir and Dibon and Nebo and Mediba. Do, do you see that? Look at verse 4, Heshbon, Eleale, and Jehaz. Do you know what those are? Those are major cities in Moab that would be invaded and conquered and pillaged and torched by the Assyrian legions. Look at the sorrow and terror that just fills the verses. Verse 1, cities devastated and destroyed. Verse 2, people scramble up to the temple to, to weep and pray to their false gods. Verses 2 and 3, bald heads and shaven beards and sackcloth and sorrow and despair. There's weeping and wailing and falling on the ground. And you would think, you would just think that had when Isaiah received this oracle and saw what was to come for the Moabites that he would say, good, finally, get rid of these people and get our land back that they're sitting on. You would think that would be the case. And yet Isaiah, not typically known for revealing his true feelings about anything, cannot contain the grief and the sorrow over the future destruction of his extended family, no matter how awful they were. Look at verse 5. Oh, my heart cries out for Moab and their refugees who are as far as Zoar and Eglath and Shelashiah, for they will go up to Luhith weeping, and they will go on the road to Horonayim, and they will raise a cry of distress over their ruin. Notice that is significant. It's not just Isaiah, but his heart that groans and moans. He's torn up, torn up over the Moabites. That, that, that his estranged brothers on the other side of the family tree would be so wicked and godless so as to bring about the ruin and annihilation of themselves as a people. Verses 6, 7, and 8 portray the desert regions 
in the middle of nowhere to which the Moabites will be driven because the only way to survive is to go where no one will chase them in the middle of the desert, Death Valley. Verse 7, so tragic and sad. Isaiah portrays them carrying their possessions and, and life savings into exile in the hope that one day they can make a life for themselves once again. But it will not be. Look at verse 9, which one commentator calls the capstone of the horrors to fall upon Moab. Look at the text. No matter where they flee, they will not be safe because the waters of Demon are filled with blood. For I, Yahweh, will appoint over Demon further woes, a lion for the escaped of Moab and for the remainder of the land. What does that mean? The waters of Demon are a little stream to the very far south of Moab where they will flee for refuge in the hopes of trying to make a life again. And yet not even that will be safe. It seems that the Assyrian army will catch up to them and kill them and fill the river of Demon with their blood. This would not end well for Ruth's descendants. The oracle then bleeds over into chapter 16 and well, we're going to have to go fast here, obviously, but here we get to the most critical and, yes, even tragic part of the oracle, and yet it is so riveting because, because get this. Let me summarize verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4, picture this now. You've got to get this. Pictures one, verses 1 through 4 pictures Moabite refugees just outside the territory of Judah. They're just outside the territory of Judah. The Philistines are coming behind them and will soon meet them and destroy them. And notice, notice what happens in verse 1. They send a tribute lamb to the king of Judah. Do you know what that is? What's a tribute lamb? That's a message. You only send a tribute lamb when you're asking for a favor, when you're asking for help. You know what they're asking for from Judah? Asylum. They will ask for asylum from Judah. They're asking the king of Judah for permission to enter their land as refugees in exchange for, their prote for his protection. They're willing to come under his authority. Look at the end of verse 3. Someone says to the king, hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Someone, maybe a counselor of the king, advises him to take in these Moabite refugees. Verse 4. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place for them from before the destroyer. For the executioner has, or rather, will come to an end, and destruction will cease, and oppressors will disappear from the, from the land. Hide them and shield them, and the threat will be over. That's the counsel. And yet I want you to notice something in verse 5, and I need you to give this everything you got here because verse 5 is the most important part, most important verse in the entire chapter. I believe verse 5, listen carefully, I believe verse 5 to be the implicit terms and conditions presented, as it were, to Moab as the basis of whether or not the king of Judah would let them in. Agree to the terms? You're welcome to come. And the conditions were, listen carefully, would they submit and yield to the Davidic king? Would they submit and yield to the Messiah? That's the question. Moab could seek asylum in Judah if they renounced their idolatry and transferred their allegiance to Israel's Messiah, who would eventually arrive on the scene of history. The question is, would they do that? Would they yield to the king? Because look at verse 5. Here are the conditions. A throne will be established in loving kindness. And he, who is he? He will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Who will sit? A judge will sit, and he will seek justice and be speedy for righteousness. Do you see it? A throne will be established. A faithful 
king will come and sit on a throne. Notice, and he will sit in the tent of David. What is that? What is the significance of the phrase, in the tent of David? You know exactly what that is. That is the Davidic covenant, isn't it? That ancient promise to David that a king would come from his family line and that he would be a king and he would rule forever. And Isaiah talks about it all of the time. Chapter 7, verse 14, he would come from David's line and he would be born from a virgin. Chapter 9, verse 6, he would, he would be God in human flesh and, and he would do justice and righteousness in the land. Chapter 11, the king would come and, and he would have a global kingdom and bring paradise back to the earth. And by a simple process of elimination, a glance at the New Testament, we see that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here he is. Again, the king appears. And I believe the implicit terms of asylum for Moab is to renounce their false gods, give their land back to Israel because it was theirs, and yield in submission to Israel's Messiah as their own. Those are the terms of asylum. And I just want you to know that those are, in fact, the very same terms for you here in this room for eternal life and the place in the kingdom if you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The same terms apply. If you have not yet laid down the weapons of rebellion and waved the white flag of surrender and given yourself to the satisfying custody of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are still in sin and rebellion, you need to know asylum is available. The God who keeps record of wrongs is offering asylum, blood-bought asylum through faith in His Son. Have you yielded to Him yet? Have you bowed the knee to him yet? This is not a game. Eternity is at stake. This is real. Have you yielded to the great king to come who has come and will come again? The question is, did Moab repent and believe? Did, how, how did they respond to the offer and submit to trust and trust in Israel's Messiah? Let's read verses six through eight and find out. We're almost done. Isaiah says, we have Heard. Okay, I'm going to read it, and you, you tell me if they accepted or rejected the offer. We have heard of the pride of Moab. Exceedingly proud they are. Their arrogance and their pride and their fury, not to mention their idle boasts, is one way to phrase that. Therefore, Moab will wail. All of them will wail. Then speaking to them, you will moan for the raisin cakes of Kir Cheraset. What are the raisin cakes of Kir Cheraset? That's like a birthday cake. Something you eat when you celebrate. No more birthday cake for you. No more celebration for you, Moab. Surely you will be utterly stricken. For the fields of Heshbon will be withered, the vines of Sibma, the lords of the nations will trample down its clusters until as far as Jezer they will reach, they will wander into wilderness, its tendrils will be spread out, they will pass into the sea. What are we seeing here? So many moving parts there. One part of that is, that is the answer to the offer. Pride and anger and rejection. No is the answer they give. And as a result, they will wail. The description of withering branches and vines that describes the invasion of their land and the withering of their land and them running for their lives in, in exile. They were offered a place in the kingdom and they threw it all away. They chose a different path, the path of pride, the path of arrogance, the path of independence. The path of darkness, the path of error, the path of terror, the, the path of wrath and judgment and even annihilation off of the planet. Is that your path this morning? That's not the only path there is. There is another one. Therefore, verse 7, Moab will wail. All of them will wail. Their destruction would come. Look at verse 9. 
How, how does Isaiah respond? Not with champagne and cheers, but with sorrow and tears. Verse 9, therefore I will, literally the Hebrew says, I will weep while weeping for Jezer. I will drench Heshbon and Eleale with my tears. Those are regions in Moab. Verses 10 and 11, more weeping, more sorrow over the Jews' extended family who were invited to share in the treasures of the kingdom, and they threw it all away. And we see him, the sorrow in verses 10 and 11. And what makes this so profound is that you can't tell who it is who's feeling the sorrow. Isaiah or Yahweh? And in this case, it is both. It's one and the same. Isaiah embodies in himself the sorrow and grief that Yahweh has for a people who could have been saved by Yahweh's glorious Savior King, but they squandered it for a life of self-sufficient pride and worship of the self. Is that you today? I'm not assuming, I'm asking. Is that you today? Are you also walking down the Moabite path? It did not end well for them. There are no Moabites today. Thirteen and fourteen, the oracle ends. Three years from this very moment, all of this is exactly what went down. It was sad, it was tragic, it was horrible, and there are lessons here. In fact, three surprising lessons from the oracles of Assyria, Philistia, and Moab, and this is going to go quick. Surprising lesson number one. Surprising lesson number one, from Assyria, we learn that nothing, I repeat, nothing happens apart from God's decree. Nothing. That all the earth-shaking forces unleashed on the earth are unleashed by God. That He alone is the only ultimate cause. And what this means is that all the sins of man and all the schemes of Satan must ultimately enhance the glory and kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have to remember this morning that God ordains what even appear to be setbacks to his own plan so his glory in the end is all the more profound when he gains the victory. And when that grips us, when we rightly consider who God has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture, we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. Surprising lesson number two. Number two, from Philistia we learn that we don't have to and we must not compromise with the crowds. We don't have to compromise with the culture. We don't have to cave to the agendas. We don't have to cave to the woke mobs of cancel culture, nor to the wicked wiles of even our own desires. Why? Because we are a people of invincible kingdom hope who when the king comes, he will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And anything that we suffer or lose for his sake will be restored a thousand times over. Surprising lesson number three. From the oracle to Moab, we learn to grieve. To grieve for lost people. People blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And yet not just grieve for them, but in compassion and courage, speak to them. Speak to them. Speak to them. Speak to them of a king who will establish a kingdom on earth and do justice and righteousness in the land. Speak to them of a king who offers asylum. Blood bought asylum through his sacrificial death. Speak to them of a king who is glorified not just by kindness and love for sinners, but by his vengeance and wrath 
for sinners because this is a king, you understand, who unless he keeps a record of wrongs and brings the hammer of judgment upon those who refuse his grace, unless he does that, he ceases to be glorious and he ceases to be God. And yet until that hammer of wrath should come, and it will come, God has put it into our hands, into our mouths, the ministry of reconciliation, of gospel proclamation, which is the power of God to save everyone who believes, to save his elect out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And so let us pray then for his power and for his grace to be faithful to that end. Who knew, O oh Lord, that there were things lurking in Isaiah 14 through 16 that we needed. And Lord, we take seriously the call to proclaim, the call to preach, not just one aspect of who you are, but every aspect of who you are to the people who so desperately need you, to the people lost and ruined by the fall just as we were to the people blind and helpless just as we were before you rescued us. Oh, empower us. Oh, empower us for the mission that you have given us. And may you receive all the glory, no matter how the crowds respond. And we know that in the end, all things will be as they ought to be. And your kingdom will come. And it's in the name of your mighty son that we pray.